0: This is the Scott Bradley Show
1: podcast. Some very big news today within the city of Hamilton, which is, it's great when we get good news and it's actually, or big news and it's actually good news. The city announced today that it has hit the $1 billion mark in building permits just nine months into the year. Now this has happened seven times in the last eight years that we've hit this mark, but we are at the earliest point. This is the first time it's ever been this early. Uh, 6,606 building projects have gone on or been applied for so far in the city. But again, it's the billion-dollar thing that seems to really stand out. Glenn Norton is the Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton. He joins me now. Glenn, thanks for coming on tonight. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, this Now, I, I'm not an expert in the building world. I, I'll say that right up front. But this sounds like a lot. It
2: is, uh, certainly for a city of our size. It's a lot. There aren't too many... Other cities in Canada who are seeing a billion a year in building permits, uh, much less a billion within nine months.
1: So what is going on? that Now, I mean, I, we know there's a renaissance here. That's what we keep hearing. But what is going on that all these people are wanting to build here?
2: Well, a lot of it is uh, home construction, right? You know that this is a pretty attractive place to live. A lot of people are moving this way from Toronto and a lot of people are deciding to stay in Hamilton that might have previously moved away. So those people need homes, and fortunately we have um, an excellent home builder industry here, and we have land available. So a lot of those numbers that you saw there, uh, half, a little more, are in residential homes. Add into that some of the condominiums that you see going up in the city and some of the apartment buildings, and then the growth in the industrial and commercial and institutional we're firing on all cylinders, I think, is the simplest way to say it, Scott.
1: The fact that seven out of the last eight years, I think those are the numbers, seven out of the last eight years, we have hit the billion-dollar mark. I was going to ask you if this is sustainable. It, it sounds like it would be. It sounds like this. I mean, it's not new. It's It's faster now, but... Let me, let me put the question to you two ways then. A, is it going to be sustainable in the long run? The fact that we've done it for many years would say so, but is it sustainable that we can continue to get faster and faster and more and more and get these numbers earlier and earlier?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So the first one, I'd say yes, I think it's sustainable. I think this is going to become the new norm for this city that we will do a billion plus in building permits a year. You know, when you look at the um, growth in the population is project projected for this area, and when you look at the migration of businesses this way, it's hard to imagine that we'll drop back below the billion-dollar mark without some significant economic uh, event leading to that. Will we continue to grow each year? I don't know. I, I suspect there'll be a little bit of up and down. Um, it can be affected by one or two very large permits. It, you know, we can get a permit for 40 or $50 million dollars for one structure if it's a high-rise or a big industrial building. Depend on when that comes in, you know, end of December versus early January can skew the numbers for a year. But um, we're kind of feeling like, let's let's just keep going. Um, Staff retired, our our building department. Oh, that's good. Very, very hard. Uh, Full credit to them for the work they do, because we're processing this number of permits with the same number of staff that, that we've had in previous years.
1: Look, this is going to be a stupid question, so forgive me for this. But is there an advantage? Is there a benefit to the city to have these kind of numbers? Like, do we? It's great, I suppose, that we're building stuff. But to the city itself, is there a real advantage to having this much construction?
0: Absolutely,
2: because the construction is—it's what it represents. In addition to the jobs that construction creates, it means that there's more people working here. There's more jobs, which is really important uh, for all of us. It also means there's a broader tax base. So as you know, Hamilton residents are are fairly heavily taxed. I mean, we can all uh, acknowledge that who live here. So the more we can spread that tax burden around between businesses, industry, and more people, uh, the better off we're all going to be and and allow us to offer additional services or improve services that are there but have been somewhat uh, starved for funds
1: people do also pay though a, a a fee to get these building permits is it on a per dollar percentage basis or, or like is it significant money that comes into the city just by applying for permits
2: oh, a- absolutely so 1% of the building permit value is typically uh, the cost of the building permit so you know what's 1% of a billion <laughs>
1: Well, a million, if I if uh, or t- is it ten million? I don't know. It's it's million. it's uh, ten million. Thank you. This is why I did journalism, not math, okay. right? It's uh, but off the top of my head, okay. So so it's not insignificant for sure.
2: No, no, it's not at all. And and there's more things that come with it. So in addition to the building permit fee, there was probably some fees for planning to get here. Uh, you probably had to submit some applications. Uh, there's also development charges, which are even higher by far than the building permit fees. Those development charges help fund future growth. They go to pay for future roads when we go to put in a a new subdivision. They pay for new and improved water lines and repairs. So the development charges are a very important part of this uh, for us. If we weren't growing and and our costs continue to go up just with inflation, uh, that means a bigger uh, burden on everybody who's currently paying taxes, and that's not a good situation.
1: For some context, do we know if the actual number of projects or the actual volume of work that's being done is going up, or is it just costing more to build stuff now? So we say, oh, a billion dollars was the equivalent of 800 million a few years ago or whatever. I mean, is it actually more work that's being done?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's more work. The inflationary cost in materials and labor is somewhere down around 3%, right? So we are far outstripping a 3% growth in these numbers. So it is actually true growth. And and it makes sense. So, you know, when you think about the number of people that have moved to Hamilton, that number seems to grow each year. You think about new businesses um, and the services that go along with them. I think we can all see that there's a growth. You know, if you just look at the cranes downtown right now, Mm. there's four up in the air. um, You know, when was the last time you saw four cranes up in the air in Hamilton?
1: No, you know you can go to Toronto and you've seen it for years. But you're absolutely right that it's uh, it is it, it's nice to see. I mean, it it suggests, as you say, it suggests that good things are happening. Um, have we done anything bureaucratically to expedite this? Because you know this as well as I do. For years, there were complaints made that it was very difficult to work within Hamilton to work with City Hall. That red tape was everywhere, and this was a complex procedure. Have we improved that somehow?
2: Absolutely, we have. And nobody's trying to say we're there, that, we've, that you know, this is the optimum uh, situation. But uh, several years ago, we implemented what's called the, uh, the one-stop for business, which was meant to be sort of a doorway in. You'd come in, and you'd find out fairly early on what is going to be required. How many permits am I going to have to get? Who do I have to see? Do I need a rezoning? And we've also moved several of our processes to be concurrent now, um, as opposed to sequential, there are several now that can happen at the same time. Of course, the outcome will be dependent upon the other factor, but that speeds things up.
1: So sorry, still, just to stop you for one second, so what would that actually mean in practical terms, that you could actually get two permits simultaneously, that you don't have to finish one thing before you can apply for the next one?
2: Um, yes, one step in the process. So you can do two steps in that process at the same time. And again, it's specific to a few certain things, and we're we're looking at where else can it be done. But, uh, you know, for instance, the record of site condition is something that the Ministry of Environment requires to be submitted on a project, and they often were sitting on them for nine months to a year before they responded that said, yep, it's okay, environmentally. Well, now we've said, look, you can't control that, Mr. Developer or Mr. Builder. Um, neither can we, it's in the hands of the province. So instead of holding you up, waiting for that before we issue your building permit, we'll go ahead and we'll process and issue a building permit We'll just make it conditional and say, listen, before you can move into that building, we have to get that MOE approval. But if you're prepared to go ahead and take that risk because you're confident that the information you submitted is is good and valid, then let's go ahead.
1: Which would seem to be getting around, as I say, some of those complaints and some of those concerns, because we heard those things for years. We would hear people complaining that it was really hard to work with the city. And, and, And I assume the city was hearing those things, too.
2: Uh, Absolutely, and and it's not as if we don't still hear them, and it's not as if we can't still improve. Um, Sometimes these things will will arise because the people applying for them don't realize quite how complex the system is. They think that, oh, this should be done in a month. (laughs) They don't realize that it's, you know, there's a lot of work. A lot of people have to look at it. There's a fair number of things that are prescribed by provincial uh, regulation. Building code, for instance, you know, when they're checking over a high-rise building, you want to make sure that that building is structurally sound and is not going to fall down and it's not going to be made of flammable materials because we're dealing with people's lives. So there are some things that can't be rushed. And then the final factor is just based on these pure numbers, the volumes that you're seeing, yeah, some of the times the process applications are stretching out um, and we're dealing with that currently. We've added some people, very few, and some of it is being dealt with through overtime which again, you don't want to do for a long period of time. It's expensive and it's very tiring for the staff.
1: Just got a minute or two left here, but I don't know the answer to this. What What is the least kind of work that requires a building permit? And when we're talking about the, you know, the, the 6,606 building permits, does that include things like fence permits or are we just talking about homes and things that are built with a home or with a, a, a store or an industrial building?
2: No, that's a good question. And that covers a whole wide range of things. That number had in every application. So, you know, for a swimming pool, you have to have an application. For a fence of a certain type and a certain height, you'd have to have an application. um, In a commercial setting, to replace the windows in your building, if you're changing the size of the opening, you have to have an application. Anything where, again, there's an issue about the structural stability or the safety of the citizens of the users has to be examined. So... That number does have a lot of small ones in it. Absolutely.
1: Last thing, is this: um, are we seeing this elsewhere? Is this a Hamilton-only phenomenon, or when you're talking to other cities in southern Ontario or other places, are we seeing the same thing? Is it just an economic reality, or is it a local reality?
2: Um, it, it is an economic reality. All the areas outside of Toronto and Toronto itself are experiencing this, not necessarily to the same degree as Hamilton, we, we are well-positioned to pick up a lot of um, uh, new residents as well as new businesses. Just our geographic location plus, you know, you alluded to it earlier, the buzz about the city. We are a more attractive place to live, work, and play than we were perceived to be just, you know, 10 years ago, 8 years ago. So I think Hamilton is, is a bit of the envy of some of our neighbours, but it's not to say they're doing badly. Maybe just not as, uh, not as good as we are right now.
1: I should ask you this. Um, we are only, we still have three months to go in the year. Uh, last year, there were 7,309 permits. That was the highest ever. We're at 6,606. Are we expecting, is there any reason to think that it's going to suddenly stop? Or are you looking at that 7,300 and saying, no, we'll probably pass that this year?
2: Well, I'm, I'm more focused on the dollar value than the number of the permits because, as you've said, some of those are, are pretty small. Um, you know, Some of them are just for repairs. Some of them are just sewage systems and, and so on. We're looking more at the dollars. So, so where could it go this year? Now. Yeah, so you know, I'm going to sort of put my money down and take a very sort of simple uh, mathematical number and say it's going to be a billion and a quarter. Um, will we get to that? You know, I, I don't know. I'm optimistic. We have three months to go, but some that will depend on some pretty big permit applications coming in. Um, but I'm aware of a few that are out there. So I think it's quite possible that we could hit the billion and a quarter mark.
1: Well, you know, and with the big raise you're going to get from this, you'll be putting in a, biz, a <laughs> building application for your new mansion that you'll want to be building, yeah. and that'll be worth a quarter million right there.
2: Yeah no, no 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 raises no raises let's dispel that right now Scott nobody in
1: the city works on the commission all right just joking I we we don't want to, we don't want to go back into uh, what was the gate with Bob Bertina's uh, anyway uh listen yeah. Glenn Norton really appreciate the time today thanks for doing this my pleasure Scott it is uh it is a very impressive. Number like it's a round number, right? So it always sounds really good. But when you start talking about a billion dollars in building permits, that that, that does seem like that's a city that's doing reasonably well. I think, I mean, he, Glenn says it is, it sounds like it is. It, It doesn't sound like there's anything bad going on when you have cranes in the sky and lots and lots of permits for a good amount of money. And, As he pointed out, the economic spill-off and spin-off that comes from this with the tax base and with people moving here and building homes and all that kind of stuff, this is, it sounds like this is a really good thing. Of course, I'm waiting for the naysayers to rise up and explain why this is not a good thing because that always happens too. But at this point, I'm looking at this going, okay, I I don't see where that argument, the, the only way somebody could possibly, I guess, make a really make a case that this is a bad thing is if they were someone who was really against, you know, we always hear about gentrification. Well, someone's fixing up this area and they're driving up home prices. Well, okay. If you want to argue that, all right. All right. But you're, you're picking at stuff. If you're saying a billion dollars of work going on in the city is somehow not a positive sign of something. I'm, I'm until someone convinces me. Otherwise I'm looking at this as a positive sign for the city billion dollars of work is a billion dollars of work. Would we prefer there not be money coming into the city and being spent here? I don't think so. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Baseball playoffs start tonight. NHL season starts tomorrow night. It's a good time to be into sports. Let me bring in... A guy who is a buddy of ours. We have him on here as much as we can because we love chatting sports with him. Uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, sir. Thanks for coming on. Bonjour. So I mentioned the baseball playoffs. I mentioned the uh, stand, the uh, NHL season. We may or may not get to that today because I have a far bigger fish to fry, and that is that the Hudson's Bay Company uh, <laughs> unveiled, unleashed, let's call it unleashed, on an unsuspecting public the clothing that our athletes will wear into the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies of the Olympics. And for those who did not get a chance to see a picture during the commercial break or beforehand, let me just it, it very quickly, and Bobby, you jump in here at any point and correct what I'm saying that is not as you think, but they have parkas that are red and white and black. They're red with a black band across it that say Canada in white lettering on it. Nah, whatever. Uh, you know, take it or leave it. Where this starts to become interesting is some of our athletes apparently are going to be walking in wearing lumberjack jackets, which I kind of think is really kind of fun. Let's um, let's let's bring it right down to the basic, you know, all Canadian thing. Let's. All I want to know, Bubba, is in addition to this, do they give them Greb Kodiaks to wear loose so they can drag them around and clump 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 everywhere, like to be a real Canadian hoser?
0: Yeah, it, it, it
1: <laughs> see, I kind of like them.
0: I don't know. I don't know. Scott. <laughs> you know, like I look at that. It makes me, as you said, yeah, it reminds me of my days of, uh, being out in smokers and, uh, having my lumberjack and then my Kodiak. or actually I, I wore Sorrells actually.
1: Did you? Oh, see, see, I was a Kodiak guy, and they never were done-ups because you got to beat them in, you got to wear no, them in.
0: No, no, anyone that tied up their laces was a loser.
1: Well, exactly. So they got to be loose. You got to clump, clump, clump. You got to drag them so they make all the noise in the world. Yeah, and you got to look like you are um, sort of right out of the bush from somewhere. I,
0: yeah. I mean, I, this is like. I mean, I li- I actually will say this. I like the move to this to sort of move to this sort of deeper red with the black, mm-hmm. as opposed to it always, as we've seen with so much of the 70s and the 80s, where it was just so much red and white. Like, it was it was so focused on the maple leaf, um, which is our colors. I mean, but, I mean, I, I I do like the modernization of that. I do like the font on the Canada. I think it's an interesting new look. But I'm telling you, like, th- some of what I'm seeing there, it's just like, is this like some... Crazy stereotype that that's what we are. (laughs) We're we're like lumberjack Joes, or or we're we're members of the Ottawa Red Blacks.
1: Well, the Uh, Ottawa Red Blacks have got to be loving this. Yeah, Uh, they they got to be loving this. This is just selling their team to the world now. It's an extension of their look. Absolutely. Uh, The other part. Now there was one part of the picture of all these models standing there wearing these that I was a little puzzled by because it appears that. And, of course, they have lumberjack, like the red and black checkered hat, baseball caps and hats, and they actually have socks that you can buy, and I bet those are actually going to be big sellers. They do have the red Vancouver Olympic mittens back. You knew they were going to have that. But there's one model standing on the stage, and it appears she's wearing some kind of Christmas-themed onesie pajama outfit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, are yeah, we really yeah. going to have our athletes walking into the stadium wearing onesies?
0: Well, I really, I really hope not. But I did see that picture, <laughs> and I—I'll I, I, be honest, it was the first thing I looked at. I was like, please no. <laughs> like, I mean, I know the onesies are popular and they're comfy. But, I mean, let's keep that to the uh, to the village, I guess, <laughs> really. Like, is that what we're going to parade ourselves in?
1: Well, you know, okay, like- so here's the other thing I want to bring up, because um, this was one of the quotes from the press release that was sent out to me. And by the way, as I said, I actually kind of like this. I think it's kind of low-key and kind of relaxed, and it's, you know, as long as our guys don't do the thing. Who was the guy in the Olympics um in the last Olympics in Rio, he was from like Peru or somewhere who came in all greased up, oiled down without the shirt on. As long as we don't do that, I suppose anything else is good. But from the press release, the full clothing kit was designed exclusively by Hudson Bay's in-house team of designers who were inspired by iconic Canadian winter style. How much designing, Bubba, did actually go into a lumberjack jacket? I don't know. This, this seems to me, I don't know if you can claim designing of that.
0: Uh, I don't know, Scott. To me, uh, I just this is just me, and uh, you know, and I'm all for comfort, and I think it's important for you know for the athletes to be comfortable, and it just this this, this doesn't give me a very athletic look, and you know, I'll be honest. I'm always impressed when we, you know, when you when you donate all those hours to watching the opening ceremonies, especially, I, I'm always impressed by some of the country, the countries that you know have their athletes just. Looking sharp, and I'm not saying wearing ties or whatever. Being you know, and this doesn't have to be, you know, the masters and you know that formal or whatever. But I think it's a nice, clean cut look. I mean, we've seen the Americans; they've had stuff, you know, over the last couple of years designed by Ralph Lauren, and, and yes, there's a, a comfort level to them. But I, I think it looks very sharp. I mean, I look, I'm looking this and sharp. Sh- you know, I don't know; it just looks
1: sloppy to me. <laughs> I just. You know, I, I suppose everybody now has to talk Canadian. Talk Canadian, eh? Take off, eh? Yeah, you got to walk like, by you know, every other team and go, take off, eh, you hoser?
0: Yeah, I mean, I just like, I think this furthers the, this, the, you know, the Canadian Eskimo stereotype. Like, it just, you know, that we all live in igloos. And like, I, I really do believe that.
1: I have one dream, Bubba, for the Olympics coming up that one of our athletes, when they get up on the podium having won a gold medal, And I love our anthem, and I want to honor our anthem, but I'm really hoping that by accident one time... They stand up there and all of a sudden you hear <laughs> and they play Bob and Doug McKenzie. Oh, that's what I thought it was. Some poor guy from from Korea goes, "Hey, I saw these things. I thought that's what they were."
0: Unfortunately, no one outside of North America will know exactly. Oh,
1: what but would popular. we ever love it? Would we ever kill ourselves laughing if suddenly it was uh, it was Bob and Doug McKenzie? I don't
0: know. I prefer I prefer the uh, the, the, McCom- the Montgomery just uh, you know downing a, a you know a, a tall boy or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I'd love to hear, by the way, as we're talking, um, if you have a thought on whether you think these uniforms are great or if you think they're sloppy or if you think they're somewhere in between Radley at 900 chml.com, send me a quick note.
0: Yeah, people should really have a look at this. I mean, because I mean, there will be mixed opinions. Oh yeah,
1: this. oh, yeah, because it really it's very Canadian, but this you know one of the things about it, and that's what I like. it is very Canadian, but you just touched on something. I don't know if outside of our borders, and maybe outside of the states, I think because of pop culture, that maybe this is familiar to people in the states. But if you go to Korea or you know where else are they going to be coming from? From Russia, from wherever for the Winter Olympics, I don't know if people are going to get the the reference and get the joke because it kind of is an inside joke.
0: Yes, <laughs> it definitely is. <laughs> kind of, but I don't know. I, I I guess it is what it is. It's you know they're, they're definitely trending younger. Maybe I'm getting oh, yeah. to be a, I'm getting to be a grumpy old man, but I don't know. I don't like it. I well, think we can I think we can do better.
1: Next Olympics, we'll be wearing the Hudson's Bay jackets. You know the the blankets like <laughs> yeah. That, yeah with the with the yellow and the red and the blue. Yeah, we'll have those next time. We'll just skip right ahead. Well, we'll see. And as I say, I'm not surprised at all. I, do you think people will? Do you think those mittens? Because the mittens are back. Do you think the mittens still work? or were they a thing that were perfect in the moment when we hosted Vancouver and they represented something but they've kind of run their course.
0: No, I'm okay with that. I, and I think I think people like that I think they feel like they're cute and they're you know they're wool and they uh, people kind of like that kind of stuff to look. It's um I I I think I think that's okay. And and, and people obviously will ask questions like what are those? <laughs> you know what I mean? As opposed to just the straight up gloves, but I, I again, I'm okay with that. I well, just I just think that, I just I just on an overall. I just find everything a little bit overly casual. I just feel like we can be sharper than this.
1: The uh, the mittens, as I recall in Vancouver, the lineups outside the store—they became the everyone remembers this. They became the Dude. thing, and you had to have a pair of Vancouver Olympic mittens. You had to. They everybody had that was that was your unofficial passport to being Canadian was wearing those mittens. No, and they were big. And you know what? I I think that that is one of those things that a company, whether it's the Bay or Roots or whoever else, that's what you're always trying to hit is that one thing that catches the public's, what's the word, That that, that they all buy into. And it's so hard. Remember, a few years before then, it was the... What do you call those backward hats? I remember Elvis Stoiko wearing it the backward oh, yeah, red hats, yeah, and that yeah, was the yeah. big thing that but they nothing was the equivalent of the mittens,
0: oh, the mittens were huge. I mean, I remember you know trying to find I think it was my oh was like my, it was my sister or my mom, but I think it was my mom, and uh you know I went into the, the and like, the lady laughed at me, <laughs> she said you know you know we can give you a rain check on them, but it'd be well after Christmas before we get another you know any more stock on those. they were were so popular.
1: They were the fashion equivalent of the Tickle Me Elmo. (laughs) (laughs) Or the Cabbage Patch. (laughs) Or the Cabbage Patch Kid, yes. People down in the States were fighting in Walmart. Well, they didn't have the mittens down there. Uh, we got a few minutes here, and I did mention that uh, the NHL season kicks off tomorrow. When you look at the Toronto Maple Leafs, specifically, because that's what everyone or most people around here are going to be looking at, uh, I'll give you three words. You tell me which one fits where you are in this right now. Optimistic, Pessimistic or cautious? I think you have to be cautious here because so much of what the Maple
0: Leafs did in that you know in that in that season of making the playoffs for the first time in a number of years, you know, pushing the Washington Capitals, the Presidents Trophy winners, uh, to six games was done with rookie players and now we need to see these players, because now there's expectation, and you know what it's like here in this market in terms of expectation, and we saw what happened with the Blue Jays over the last couple of years, is that with a a group this young, now they have to be even better than they were last year. They can't be just as good. And the the one trusting trust I think any Maple Leaf fan should have is that you've got arguably one of the better coaches in the National Hockey League, Who will keep these guys grounded? Who will continue to make them work and earn their ice time? So I think that's a very important thing there. But I think for Maple Leaf fans to sit there and think that you know they're guaranteed a playoff spot and that you know the next step is the Eastern Conference Final, I'm I'm very on guard on that because everyone else got better in the league, right? except the Montreal
1: Canadiens. Well, so. <laughs> well, the thing, yeah, and you know what really strikes me is is I also share the cautious thing. I'm optimistic that they are, they have a lot of good young players and they finally have some depth, but the one thing the Leafs did not really have to deal with last year was they were largely unscathed with injuries. They had almost nobody right. get hurt, certainly, right. certainly nobody who mattered. That's right. And... Yeah, it's hard to imagine you could go through two years of that, that nobody's going to get hurt. And if somebody, I mean, okay, Leaf fans, cross your fingers, cross your toes, touch some wood. But if Austin Matthews or if Mitch Marner or if, you know, any, of Frederick Anderson or any of these key guys went down with for any extended period of time, what is the team then?
0: And that's what we're going to need to find out. Because, you know what, Scott, it will happen. And and it may not be one of those players. It might be more of a role player. But there's no possible way the team can go through, you know, with that kind of luck. It is luck, you know, because on the other end, you look at the Blue Jays and the uh, the unfortunate luck they had with injuries this year, everything from concussions to blisters and more blisters. You know, so at some point, their, their luck is going to run out and uh, and their depth is going to be tested. Now they do have a lot of I think that's the one good thing in this organization and the way you know Brendan Shanahan has reformed it with Lou Lamarello and of course coach Babcock. This is an organization with depth, and that Marley's team could well you know do very well this year because they have it's loaded with good players, veterans and youngsters. So they're going to get tested this year, and they're not a surprise to anyone anymore. And I think, and you tell me if I'm off base by saying this or not, but I get this feeling here because there was such a successful year last year. And I think amongst the National Hockey League, there's this feeling now that, oh, Toronto's feeling really good about themselves, and that's the team they want to beat. And I'm talking about other teams around the league, that they want to go into Toronto and beat them. Oh, and beat.
1: especially the Canadian teams. For sure. Oh, especially, and now they're not all in the East, but yeah, you know, the, the rest of the Canadian teams, the rest of the Canadian fan bases, yes, there are Leaf fans in all those places. You see that whenever the Leafs show up, but you don't think that now that the Leafs are no longer the sad sack Leafs that are the pity of the league and the folks in different parts of this country that already hate Toronto and hate the Toronto area, you don't think that the team they want to beat more than anyone is Toronto? Oh, sure they do. I mean, maybe Edmonton and Calgary hate each other more. But if you're out in Vancouver, you want to beat Toronto. If you're in Montreal, you want to beat Toronto. If you're in Ottawa, you want to beat Toronto. If you're in Winnipeg, you want to beat Toronto. You know, and let's not forget our friends 40 miles down the road. You're in Buffalo, you want to beat Toronto. You're in Detroit, you want to beat Toronto. You're in the original six, you want to beat Toronto. The truth is, nobody likes the Leafs unless they're in last place, and then they still don't like them, but they just don't hate them as much.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Right, so that with all the hype that they're getting and their players and the youth and you know the Leafs are reborn. There are teams out there uh, that that just you know, you know, like we used to say. Many, well, I guess maybe we're still saying here in Hamilton about doesn't matter how the season goes, you just want to beat the Argos. You know, on on a more regular basis, because the National Hockey League play you know play so many games in a regular season, it's like you go to Toronto and you want to embarrass them in front of their home crowd. And when they come to our building, and you know, and you know that every building that go that that the Leafs go to, there's going to be four, four five thousand fans. Well, the rest of the ten thousand or twelve thousand fans are going to want to shut up those four to five thousand. Absolutely,
1: uh, we've got twenty seconds. Who is in the World Series? Playoffs start tonight. What two teams make it to the World Series?
0: Oh, wow. Um, Cubs, Cubs again. Uh, I think I'm going to be in a position to repeat. I like the way they're playing. They're really, really heating up. And wouldn't it be something for the Minnesota Twins to beat the Yankees huh. tonight? That first, I mean, I mean, to me, that is one of the greatest stories in sport. A team that lost 103 te- games last year are in the playoffs this year. I mean, that's incredible! What a turnaround by, by Coach Molitor and and that you know and that young and improving squad. Is
1: Paul Molitor allowed to pinch hit in this one? Because he did pretty well in the playoffs.
0: Oh, pretty good. Yeah, Real good.
1: <laughs> uh, Dodgers-Indians. There you go. We will see. Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate the time. You can watch him tonight on CHCH at 11 o'clock, sir. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, man. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Two, three weeks ago, I don't know how long ago it was, we started hearing stories that Toys R Us was in deep, deep, deep financial trouble to the point of talking about bankruptcy. But rather than simply going out of business, they're trying to figure some things out. They're trying to become more modern, more relevant. They're trying to find ways to stay in business, to turn these things around. And one of the ways that they have talked about now, one of the things that they have talked about trying to do to bringing in to make things better and to save costs while also selling the product they have to move is called augmented reality. Essentially what they are proposing is that you will go to the Toys R Us website and it will be kind of like a virtual reality world. You will, it's as if you're walking through the doors of the store and if you like a particular, you like Barbie, okay, we'll go to the Barbie section and it'll be the experience of being in the store. Barbie, you could you can, with your mouse, with your clicker, you can maybe pick up Barbie. Barbie will do the things that Barbie would do. You can see how Barbie would move or if she would interact or whatever else. It's a digital version. It's a virtual augmented reality. It's not going to be hands on the doll. It's going to, you are going to buy it by kind of experiencing the doll. Will this work though? That's the thing that I'm wondering about. Will this work? We know that e-commerce, we know that buying stuff online works for some things, but will it work for everything? Dr. Khaled uh, Hassanan uh, is a professor of information systems. He is is the associate dean and director of McMaster Digital Transformation Research Center at the DeGroote School of Business, at McMaster. His interdisciplinary research interests span the areas of digital technology adoption of e-commerce, m-commerce and e-health applications. This is a guy who has been studying this world. How are computers, how is the internet going to affect commerce and what we buy going forward? He joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight.
3: You're very welcome and I'm glad to be with you.
1: Um, this, The idea, I suppose, behind what Toys R Us, and Toys R Us is certainly not alone, but the idea behind what they're proposing is certainly not new. We've had lots of things that we've been able to buy online for years and years and years now, but it strikes me that what they're trying to do and the depth of what they're trying to do is a little bit branching into some new territory, is it not?
3: I think this is a bit uh, different indeed, and you are right on this uh, note. Uh, uh, I mean, E-commerce sales have been booming uh, in, 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 in the past few years. So if I can quote some statistics for you, we are heading from about $1.67 trillion uh, in sales online in 2015 to about $3.6 trillion in 2019. Wow. About 2 billion buyers uh, or digital buyers in the world today. So uh, this is a very, very... Um, like a like interesting trend uh, that is seeing people move to purchase a lot of the things they never even thought of purchasing online before to actually uh, purchasing online uh, if I apply this to the toy industry, a definite trend is is amazon so uh, the offline sales in two thousand fifteen or 2016, I'm sorry, was about over $20 billion, and Amazon sold $4 billion. The growth of Amazon sales for toys uh, in one year was 24%, and for the entire industry offline was 5%. So this is indeed a threat for toy sales in, in the physical stores.
1: And there's a number of things that become very interesting from that on a broader scale. One of them is when you talk about those numbers of 1.6 to 3 point whatever it was, trillion. The first thing that strikes me about that is clearly anybody who still has concerns or doubts about giving their credit card or worries about buying something online, which used to be a real strong concern, that clearly is fading very quickly.
3: It is fading, uh, especially in North America where people are becoming uh, very much used to uh, shopping online. And uh, it depends on the age category, too. So of course. Among, among the youth and the younger population, this is quite uh, what we call digital natives. It is, is, is quite the, the, the normal thing to do.
1: Okay, so I get... And this, where this becomes really interesting to me, Doctor, is I understand I've bought many plane tickets, for example, online. That makes all kinds of sense. I can shop around. It's something that it doesn't really matter if I touch it. You really can't touch a plane ticket until you get it. It's just a piece of paper. I can understand buying music online, downloading music. I can understand buying any number of things that I don't necessarily need or have a benefit to touching or holding or trying on before doing it but for kids and for toys and we'll move on from this in a second but for kids and for toys is that going to work because i think that kids want to go into a toy store and touch the thing before they decide if it's fun or not
3: uh you bring a very good point and we've actually conducted research on this and you can like uh, categorize products into a few main categories one of them is Material products, and these are products that consumers like to touch and feel, like, for example, buying a towel where you will see shoppers like rubbing the towel against their face. Exactly, yeah. Like. Or trying a clothing item to see how it fits, how the material feels. Uh, there is also geometric products. These are things like um, buying a picture frame, and all you need to assess this type of product is is your senses of, of vision and, and uh, maybe hearing for music. So that's why it's very popular to buy books online, for example, because you can examine the product fully in the online environment mm. and you're not missing out on any uh, anything in terms of the attributes of the product. However, there is a category of products that we call mechanical products, and these are products that consumers like to interact with. This is like when you go to buy a phone and you want to feel how you, you get the tactile, tactile feedback from pushing the phone buttons, for example. I like doing that. Uh, but for kids, the interesting thing is they like to interact with the toys. And if you think about kids, uh, they don't, they're not going to go and especially younger ones, they're not going to go and read lengthy product reviews uh, online or elsewhere. They want to examine the toy for themselves. And to do this, the industry has been using uh, open face boxes where the kids can actually interact with the truck or the, the doll and and feel how it, 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 it works and um, what sounds it makes. And you see that in all the toy stores uh, that, that one can go to. Uh, It is interesting if you see going back to Amazon and toy sales, the top categories in terms of toys selling on Amazon are building blocks and board games. While in physical stores, the top sellers are dolls and action figures. And the difference here is dolls and action figures are toys that kids like to pick up and examine, but building blocks and board games are almost like books. These are common square boxes, and you know what you want. You go there, and you just order the product. Uh, it's not going to give you much to interact with the product. So if we take that to the case of um, of, of Toys R Us, I can elaborate more on what are they capitalizing on here.
1: Okay, so the, the idea then... Well, what they've done, they haven't just got a picture then online. They're trying to make you be able to interact in some way digitally. Right. But is but is that going to have, do you believe that, is that going to have the same impact as actually touching something? You may be able to see it moving and it may be, you it'll see what it does, but is that exactly the same thing?
3: And here is the brilliance of this approach, if I uh, may, uh, so e-commerce sales are booming. People are flocking online to buy stuff because they're getting good deals and they can shop online. More than 50% of buyers shop online first before buying offline. But the important thing is if you have a website and people come to your website, they will see a product they like, but they may not necessarily buy it from your store, mm. either online or offline. They may go to somebody else, which is more conveniently created to them, or has it at a cheaper rate. So the main thing is to bring people in the store, and that is what Toys R Us is trying to do.
1: There will be, though. There are things, and you've touched on a number of them, where it doesn't really matter if you see it or not, but expanding this beyond toys, I would think it would be very difficult to sell clothing, for example, this way, because you want to know how it's going to fit on you, and even if they have some sort of ability to say to type in your height and your weight and even if you could put a download digital image of your face on a person and see how i, I still think people are going to want to know how does that shoe fit how do those pants fit how does that dress fit there are things that you still need to touch we can never get fully can we into the online stuff
3: right so again you, you are you're touching on a very important point but let let me first point out that 42 percent of canadians both both clothing clothing online so it is one of the top sellers in the online really? and actually more so than books. Wow. So, so even clothing is being bought online. Uh, now, you are um, referring to the retail industry in terms of clothing, and uh, it is a material product like we discussed. And the idea, again, this is becoming very competitive. Amazon and Alibaba are threatening the retailers who have physical stores uh, like Walmart and, and Target. Uh, Let me give you an example, like Timberland uh, has an augmented reality display. This is a display, a store display, and when you walk by the store display, it almost like calls on you, uh, where you can actually start uh, seeing yourself on the display, and you can start putting different items of clothing on yourself, and you're seeing how it would look on you. Now, you did not feel it, you did not try it on, But when you see something that is good-looking on yourself, it might lure you into going into the store to try it, and here is where you will get the opportunity to touch and feel the product, try it on. And similar other stores have the same thing in the store, where you can keep trying different things and how these dresses look on on you, for example, and eventually, when you like two or three of them, you zoom in on these and take them to the fitting room. You can touch them, feel them, and try them on, and these kinds of approaches will pique the interest of the consumer because they're innovative and will give you a competitive advantage, but you need to back this up by having a high-quality product and competitive pricing.
1: Well, yes, and I read, I was just reading actually something on uh, Bloomberg Uh, But Nordstrom, which is a higher end clothing place, they're talking about in the future having no product in the store. So it's kind of what you're talking about. You'll go in, you'll walk into their much, much smaller store space now, and they may have a little wine bar or a coffee or something to keep you there. But you will, it's all going to be on the experience and there will be a tailor or someone. But you will see, as you described, something online with you kind of wearing it and then within... Five hours, it'll appear at your door if you want to order it customized to you. It, it completely changes what we're doing.
3: Exactly. So it, it all depends on the experience. And, and actually, customers go shopping in malls and so on for the experience. It's not only for the utilitarian purpose of getting a product. They want to shop with family and friends, enjoy like the
1: interaction mm-hmm. and so
3: on. So even though we have the online environment, which is highly convenient... Gives us some control over pricing and so on. We still want to shop and have these entertaining shopping experiences. If I may, I want to project this back on the Toys R Us strategy. Now, uh, if you capitalize on the gamification, a huge trend that is happening, and we saw the Pokemon uh, Go craze that happened over the past two years, and The use even of gamification in in serious games in an educational context, including with kids. The fact that uh, kids are digital natives and they're increasingly interacting with iPads and cell phones, even from the time they are one year old. Uh, And they they don't want just to swipe and scroll anymore. They want something more compelling. Uh, They want to interact with the toys in an interesting way. So... um, they can, they can now uh, do more with the toys when they walk into the store uh, and get hooked on it. So mm. they can interact with it. They can take a doll and say, for example, change the diaper for, the doll, uh, for, <laughs> for that doll in, in, in an interactive experience. Uh, they can play basketball and have competition with other uh, kids at the store. And once they get hooked on a product, uh, they are going to want it there and then. They want the immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. Tell their parents, "I want this toy now." We're similar to having the candy displayed at eye level for kids at a grocery store, where they just want that candy at that point in time. So this will draw uh, customers to the store, and is similar in like as a strategy to the Mac stores that are sprouting about in many malls. Where you bring people to have interaction around the map products, and then they get hooked on these products, and that translates to sales.
1: Just it's, very quickly, because we only have a few seconds left here, and I just it, it seems as though even if we eventually were to get with the experiences and everything you're talking about, there will still be. I would think, and I may be wrong on this, but there will still be some things. That we are always going to want to go to the store. And the number one thing, because I've been reading a lot about this lately, is there are stores, grocery stores, food stores, that are trying to figure out ways to become the, you can buy your lettuce and your carrots and everything online. I can't believe that there's going to come a point when we're all going to say, yeah, just choose whatever food you want for me. And we're not going to want to test that before it shows up. We want to test whether the melon is fresh and the bananas are fresh, don't we?
3: Yes, and these things will continue to sell offline, but even then, in certain urban areas, they're becoming, con- as a convenience, they are delivered uh, like by ordering online. And grocery stores are experimenting with things to allow you to uh, interact with these products in a sense of here is the recipe and so on. So it's giving you additional things if you go shopping online. And in the future... I am sure that they will be able to add the sense of smell and like a tactile sense so we can feel and touch things online.
1: That's, That's when we're going to be in trouble, isn't it? When you can now have your computer pumping out smells, now we're done. They put out chocolate chip cookie smells and we're buying stuff forever.
3: Remember with 3D printing, <laughs> with 3D printing we're already able to print something using yes. inks in the printer. Uh, So we are not too far away from these things, but I I still see that there is a lot of value in interacting in the real world and not having everything in the online environment, although the online environment can help us in a lot of ways.
1: Dr. Khaled Hassanein from the uh, McMaster Digital Transformation Research Center. Excellent stuff and I really appreciate it. Very interesting. Thanks for your time.
3: Thank you very much, Scott. And have a good
1: evening. You as well. That is, uh, it is fascinating stuff because it is just, Can you imagine even 10, 15 years ago, imagining how this was going to play out. Now, some stuff, as I say, has been online forever. You could buy it online forever, but the way things are changing and I'm, you know, again, I like to point out that I'm not a complete old fart. I mean, I'm not that old that I can not appreciate some of the stuff, but it just, boy, it's moving fast. And, the one thing, if you go and read a lot of the stuff, go read a lot of the stories. The one word that keeps coming up, it's a word that has become the code word for everything is experience. It's the shopping experience. It's the social experience. It's the online experience. It's the the augmented reality experience. And I got to tell you, while that makes some sense, there is also a point when I don't necessarily want an experience. I just want the product. If I want to buy a pair of jeans, I don't really necessarily want to be through augmented reality transported back to the wild west to see how the jeans were cured and died and everything else when denim was created. I just want to buy a pair of jeans. We'll see. But that, you know, I may be, I may be the last generation who wants that maybe coming along those who are 15, 16, 17 now are looking forward to the day when they never have to leave their house. Their groceries will be brought to them. All the stuff will be brought to them by Amazon. You just sit in your house all day. You work from home. You never see another person except for your family. Although I don't know how you'll meet your spouse if you never actually leave your house. I suppose we'll have Petri dish babies. Oh, yes. Ben is pointing to his phone. You will You will scroll down, Find a uh, find a donor that you wish who will help you get pregnant. The doctor will come to your house and uh, you'll have the baby at home with a midwife or a doula. And um, from the time you're 16 years old, you will never actually see the out of doors. I, I suppose maybe that's where we're heading. I don't know. I, I don't know that I look forward to that. There is a there is a happy medium, surely, somewhere in here. We will find out. But anyway, it is, it's fascinating stuff. I, if you're interested in this, go... Um, Go take a look because there's tons and tons of great stories about this, about where we are heading, or at least where the companies would like us to be heading.
0: The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.